Hey everyone, and welcome to the Flatlining Podcast, the podcast that brings you great healthcare analysis and discussion each week. I'm Matthew Handley from Flatlining.net, and with me as he has been as the president and CEO of Fulcrum Strategies, Ron Howergan. Ron, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me. This week, I had a number of stories about the state of California come across my desk, and so we're going to spend our time focusing on some of the healthcare news stories and legislative items that are working their way through the state of California. The first story we want to discuss today is something that I reported on in the Friday Pulse Check from a few weeks ago, and that is the state of California's decision to sever ties with the pharmacy retail giant Walgreens. This is because Walgreens has decided that in certain states that might outlaw the abortion pill mifepristone, uh, that they're not going to sell it in those states. Uh, The state of California has decided to take action against Walgreens because of this decision, with California Governor Gavin Newsom saying that they are denying access uh, to health care to certain women in the state of California doesn't want to do business with them. Ron, how much of this is 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 a political really a political decision on the part of the state of California? Um, well, it's it's clearly political, and, and it's clearly political on my end on both sides. Um, this is an incredibly hot button issue. It, mm-hmm. it became much more so when the Supreme Court made their ruling about abortion. Um, and so I'm not going to get into the, the, the pros or cons of, you know, which side of the issue it is. The thing I don't like about it on either the states who are threatening to pursue action at Walgreens or California in their response is it puts a company, Walgreens, sort of in the middle of a debate in an issue that I don't think they should be in the middle of. Mm-hmm. You know, if this pill in a state is clearly deemed to be illegal and the cases around this pill are in the court systems right now, so it's not a black and white issue. Mm-hmm. But if this pill is illegal in a certain state, no pharmacy will sell it. Right. They won't, I mean, that, that's an easy thing to do. Um and, and that, you know, Walgreens will respect that state law. I don't like the idea of California saying, well, you know, just because you're not going to sell it there, now you can't sell anything in California. If it's legal in California and Walgreens sells it, those other states should respect that. Why does a company have to get put in the middle of what really isn't their debate? Mm-hmm. They're not taking a pro or con issue on this issue. They're just saying we want to operate in the state with whatever the rules that state has. Right. And and it's interesting, too, because Walgreens and Rite Aid were the two pharmacies that came up pretty quickly and said that they were going to sell it as soon as they got approval from the FDA. Mm-hmm. Uh, other major other major pharmacy chains, other major pharmacy chains uh, like Kroger and Walmart and Meyer, I don't think they've come out and said whether or not they're going to seek approval. Um, although the, I'm, I think Walmart is probably going to be leaning in that direction. So does that beg the question then that for, if Walmart say, or Kroger, which has brands in California decides not to sell it at their pharmacies, are they going to sever ties with those, uh, with those retailers as well? Yeah, I, I think it's, again, that's the problem I have with it. You're dragging a company into a fight they don't want any part of. They're not taking a position of, and they shouldn't have to. Um, you know, it's a it's a similar issue where state laws, I mean, you know, um, it used to be that there were different drinking ages in different mm-hmm. states. Well, you know, would one state say, well, if you're going to sell beer to 18-year-olds in your state, then you can't sell anything in my state. Right. You know, it just, like I said, I don't like this slippery slope of starting to involve private companies and, and suppliers, et cetera, in a fight that they've got no business being in and don't want to be in. Mm-hmm. One thing that I think everyone 
immediately thinks of of what's going to be affected is, and I'm assuming that this would be the case, that uh, Medicaid patients in California won't be able to get their prescriptions filled at Walgreens at at the in-network rate. Um, But more interestingly to me is that it also terminates a contract the state had with Walgreens to be the specialty pharmacy for their prison system. Mm -hmm. So you you and I work in the contracting world for healthcare. That's what we do most of our day. You yeah. know what happens now for the state of California, the prison system? Are they are they do they have to wait until this contract is up, or do they put out a bid immediately for other pharmacies? My guess is they'll put out a bid immediately for other pharmacies. My guess is I haven't seen the contract that that contract doesn't guarantee volume to Walgreens. Mm-hmm. It just says, if we do send, you know, use you for these services, this is what we'll pay. Right. That's typically how those contracts go. Mm-hmm. So my guess is they're not going to have to wait till it's done and they'll just sort of turn off Walgreens. And and again, in, in one respect, state of California is right to contract whoever they want to contract with. The one thing that I would caution they or any other state is if they're going to say, well, this is just our right as a purchaser to do whatever we want to, then you've got to respect the right of a seller. Mm-hmm. And what happens if there's a drug manufacturer or the seller of a good or service that decides that, no, I'm not going to sell to the state of California because I don't like their politics. And what if they're the only people that provide that, mm-hmm. you know, take a, a drug manufacturer that makes a new drug and they've got it on patent and they're the only ones and it's a fantastic drug. What if that happens to be a company that's, you know, let's say owned or controlled by a more conservative leading individual and says, okay, then I'm not going to sell to you because I don't have to. That's the reason why I get into this. It's a problematic when governments get into these kind of issues. Um, I'm sure if California were banned from purchasing a certain drug, they would scream bloody murder. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in some ways, rightfully so. But then Walgreens has a you know, as an argument to do the same here. And it's interesting because I'm sure some people are going to um, email or tweet us and say that this is this is an example of a quote unquote woke state going after a, a corporation that they don't like what they're doing. But remember that this has happened on a smaller scale when uh, Coca-Cola made some remarks about homosexuality and gay marriage. Uh, there were several counties in North and South Carolina that decided they were going to be selling Pepsi in their vending machines. And they took this similar action, granted on a much, much smaller scale, um, over a political statement by what they viewed as a political statement by the by the company. So it, it does happen on both sides. Well, and even in the reverse, think about when we had HB2 in North Carolina right. and you had the uh, the ACC tournament was outside of Greensboro for several years because right. of that. Well, or look at that. I mean, for for the for the. Individuals on the right, if you will, who say this is a woke state who's involving with, you know, what should be free commerce. Well, for every one of those, there's somebody on the left who's pointing to Florida and say, well, that's right. a, you know, that's a, a, a right wing state that's that's messing around with Disney when they shouldn't. For mm-hmm. And again, I, I, I'm not saying one's right or one's wrong. I, I don't like it when governments get involved with that part of it. I don't think that's personally that that's their place. And the problem is it opens it up to that sort of tit for tat. And, you know, you better be comfortable with the reaction. Last question on this particular topic. Do you think this will hurt Walgreens? Because I know that's the intention of the governor of California. But do you think it'll actually do anything to to the company? In, In total dollars, this is not a huge contract for them. Um, like the specialty pharmacy contract, et cetera. Now, if California turned into California and New York and Massachusetts mm-hmm. and, you know, sure, it, it absolutely could. Um, you know, what's going on in, in Florida with Disney and with is, is hurting Disney. 
um, because of some of the things that's happening there. Um, I, I And I get back to, I'm just not sure that whether it's state or federal government, the purpose is to hurt a private industry. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to see them doing things to help their, you know, their um, citizens rather than that. Right. And I think it's important to remember, too, that uh, the governor of California, Gavin Newsom, he is chomping at the bit to run for president when his turn is uh, coming up, whether that be this go around if Biden doesn't run for re-election or, or the next go around in 2028. 20, uh, uh, so it feels just right around the corner. So, yes. uh, yeah. We will move on now to another uh, interesting story that came up in California, also related to the government and contracts. But this is a story about the government contracting with a particular pharmaceutical manufacturer called Civica. And Civica makes uh, generic drugs, including generic insulin. And so the state has contracted with this manufacturer to produce California-branded generic insulin. Uh, that will be available for sale seemingly to anyone in the state of California. Uh, the vials will be $30, or you can pay $55 for five injectable pens. This is an interesting um, this this is an interesting take on the problem of expensive insulin. So I'm because the the president has made this an issue for him. We've seen other manufacturers come down to $35 a month as their price cap. So how do you expect this to work, and is this unique uh, in the story of American healthcare? Yeah, it is a bit unique because, you know, this is going one step beyond a purchaser, albeit the state, sort of putting a contract out to bid and saying, hey, I want to buy, you know, a lot of insulin, and I want to, you know, buy it from the lowest bidder. That's fine. I mean, mm-hmm. that's no different than a state saying, hey, I'm going to build a bridge. You know, who's the lowest bidder on the construction company that meets my criteria? That I, I'm i all over. But this is, and I'm going to be a supplier of this as mm-hmm. the state. I'm going to start competing for the supply of this and then sell it to somebody else. Now there, and I'm not a lawyer, I think there's some questions about you know, is that unfair competition? Do you really want to compete against the state? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if, if if I'm somebody who wants to build a plant in California and manufacture insulin to sell it to them, well, I'm going to have to do things like pay taxes, state right. taxes. Mm-hmm. Well, the state doesn't have to do that. So I don't like this. I don't like them getting into the, I'm going to produce it and supply it and compete I don't think the state government should be competitors in a free market economy. I'm perfectly fine if Gavin Newsom wants to say, look, I'm going to buy a bunch of insulin. Who wants to sell it to me within a certain set of parameters? Those are my bid specs. And the the company who can do it for the lowest price gets it. That's wonderful. Mm -hmm. But being a supplier and a competitor, I don't like that. Right. And there's talk that other generic medications could could come later. Sure. Um, pharma, uh, the, the lobbying group for the, for the big drug manufacturers, uh, opposes this move and they say that Governor Newsom should be going after the pharmacy benefit managers instead. Um, could this be a model now the I know you're skeptical because of the, your it's unfair comp, it could be unfair mm-hmm. competition, but could this be a model for Medicare and Medicaid programs across the country? Oh, it certainly could. I mean, if, if, you know, somebody at the federal level decided that said, hey, I'm going to start making, pick a drug, you know, any mm-hmm. drug that's off formulary uh, or that's off uh, patent and start manufacturing, compete it, uh, compete with, with those manufacturers, they could. And again, it's, it's, it's unfair competition um, because it's the federal government. Right. Um, 
the other thing is I don't I don't understand why they have to do that. I really think he could have accomplished, you know, everything that he wanted to purely by putting it out to bid. He'd have gotten the price and he wouldn't have had to sort of produce himself. I think, and again, I'm 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 saying what my opinion is. Mm -hmm. I think it's about stamping the California state seal on these on these vials and saying, mm -hmm. look what I did. Mm -hmm. Because then you're right. He wants to run for president, and good for him. But um, I, I don't know that this is a wonderful way to do that. And, and to me, it crosses a line. It's It doesn't appear to be that much different than price negotiation. Would you say that it's different, or, or would you say that they're, they're, they're well, pretty close together? The only difference is, you know, the price negotiation is fine if you're just sort of, like I said, putting things out to bid. Who, who will, who's willing to sell it to me? Um, that's different than taking, let's say, a single source drug or whatever and saying, I'm only going to pay this. That's it. And you have to sell it to me because I'm the government. And I can make you uncomfortable. Um, but then there's a whole different thing of saying, well, you know, I'm going to jump into this industry and not have the same um, rules, if you will as everybody else in this industry, like paying taxes and property tax, et cetera. Um, that's a little bit like saying, I'm going to start playing football, but I get 15 guys on my side rather than your 11. Right. Um, that doesn't work. That's, that's where I think it's a little bit different. What stops the big insurance companies such as United or the, or the blues or, or Cigna from doing this themselves and selling, you know, say a blue cross blue shield, North Carolina branded insulin. Um, nothing stops them from doing that. Um, to me, though, they're not. That's not sort of unfair competition, if you will, because you know they've still got the same playing field, if you will, as the other manufacturers. Okay, mm -hmm. yeah, they've got a well. If they're Blue Cross, they may be a nonprofit. They may not have to pay income taxes, but they've got a lot of the same you know rules that they have to live by that the state government doesn't. Mm -hmm. So sure, I mean, a Blue Cross could say, "I'm going to start producing insulin." Um, and I'm going to use it for my members. The only time that that can potentially run afoul, and again, I'm not an attorney, is if it runs afoul of antitrust from what they call anti-tying. Um, and that's like, for example, um, you know, Ford Motor Company can't require that you only buy Ford tires. Right. Okay, that's an anti-tying. It goes back to an old IBM adding machine case. Um, so Blue Cross couldn't say, if you're a Blue Cross member, you can only use Blue Cross insulin. Mm -hmm. You know, that's anti-tying. They'd have to allow you to buy your insulin, you know, other types of insulin. Uh, Robert Feldman from the University of California College of Law in San Francisco uh, is quoted in this article from Kaiser Health News, and, and he's saying that this is going to disrupt the pharmaceutical industry. Do you think it'll ever come to market, or do you think that um, it'll fall apart before it, before people can actually get their hands on some of this? Well, I, I, first of all, I would be highly surprised if there isn't an awful lot of legal challenges to this. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's part of what he was saying was, you know, this could be really disruptive. That's why it's going to go uh, to the court systems, because it's it's one of those slippery slope things. Once the state becomes a competitor in this, why can't they be a competitor? Why not? California electric automobiles. Right. You know, let's put Tesla out of business and, and build our own electric cars and we'll sell them cheaper because we don't have the same cost structure that somebody like Tesla does. I mean, it's it's easy to try to justify this because it's healthcare and I'm providing cheap insulin to diabetics, which is great. There's, I mean, mm -hmm. but conceptually, there's really no different than that on Gavin deciding he's going to build California electric cars. Right. 
Moving on now, uh, another hot button issue in California and in the country as a whole is how we handle COVID-19 misinformation. And you may recall that uh, last year, the California legislature passed a law that uh, would basically would have medical licenses removed from doctors who promoted COVID-19 misinformation. And what the law was intended to do was to go after those physicians who were repeatedly promoting ivermectin uh, and hydroxychloroquine as a as a cure for COVID-19, those that were spreading vaccine misinformation, such as that it changes your DNA or it causes infertility, things that were blatantly false. Uh, but it has been temporarily halted by two different judges in the state, uh, one of which says it violates the First Amendment, and the other says it's unconstitutionally uh, vague. And so, Ron, do you mind giving us a rundown of um, where some of these people think that this law could go, and that's why they're suing to have it stopped? Yeah, well, the the, the big concern with the law is stepping on a doctor's ability to have an open and honest conversation with their patient without fear of repercussion. Mm -hmm. Okay. Even in, 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 you know, in most, uh, maybe all states now, um, contracts between insurance companies and doctors always have information there that says nothing in this contract shall impede on your right to provide your patient with what you believe is the best medical information. Mm -hmm. And those, because there used to be things in, in contracts called gag clauses, and those are deemed to be illegal because we want the purity of that patient-physician relationship. And I think we should protect it at all costs. And so the, the people who are against this law say, boy, this is getting awful close to, you know, states, legislators, et cetera, deciding what my doctor can talk to me about and shouldn't my doctor be able to talk to me about anything? Mm -hmm. um, now, I've been very hard on some of the people who have been pushing things like ivermectin. Right. Or people who have been trying to tell people that the vaccine contains a chip or it'll change your DNA. Um, if, they're, if they're physicians, I, I, I think they should lose their license for that because it's wrong. Now, I don't think it should be because of a law like this. I think they should go before their licensing board. There's a process there to review physician behavior, everything from providing inaccurate information to, you know, moral issues or to having, you know, inappropriate relationships with patients, anything that's sort of outside of their code of conduct, if you will. And that board can suspend, remove, you know, whatever your license, if they deem those violations to be egregious. And I think there's already a process to do that that works and works well. Mm -hmm. So I don't like these laws because I do think they're, you know, they're very difficult to enforce. And what's the next law going to be? You know, right. well, you, you can't, you know, you can't talk to somebody about an abortion pill. Yeah. Well, if in, you're in your state and that's legal, that physician should be able to have that conversation, mm -hmm. um, even if the governor or the legislator of that state doesn't agree with it personally. One of the issues at point here is the definition of misinformation in the law. Right. And it defines misinformation, and I'm quoting here, as false information that is contradicted by contemporary scientific consensus, contrary to the standard of care. Over the last three years that we have been dealing with COVID-19, and believe it or not, it has been three years at this point, um, we have had a significant shift in how we understand this virus. Even this morning, I, ha I heard someone on uh, on the radio that was complaining that 
at the beginning they said don't wear masks. Now they're saying Ron, thanks masks. for coming on. I'm not going to wear a mask. Whereas we've we've had this change. Not well, change is the wrong word. Our understanding has shifted to be better and more informed right. about what is good. And the problem is, is it changes so quickly that is it really fair to say that someone could lose their license because they're two weeks behind on the latest study? Yeah, and it's and I would the word I would say it evolves. Yeah, and medicine in all factors always evolves. I mean, there are things that we learn every day that that change a physician's approach to something. And it's not all black and white, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, you know, veterinary grade ivermectin. Okay. That's pretty black and white. Right. But let's take a different one. Um, hydrochloroquine. Early on, it was unknown if hydrochloroquine helped or hurt. And then there was a period of time where there looked to be like some meta-analysis that said, you know what, it may help. Right. Because what they were doing was doing the, the, uh, hey, you know, these people were given hydrochloroquine and they got better. Now, is that true, true, and unrelated, or is there a correlation effect there? And so for a while, you could even say that that was probably a positive thing to discuss or even think about. That was current thinking. And then they did some actual studies, and they said, you know what? Now we've got better data. It turns out it doesn't help. Mm -hmm. That was coincidental that people were given it got better. And the data shows that it, it you know, produces a cardiac, uh, higher instance of cardiac events. Now we know it's not good. So you're right. I mean, in those things, how do you tell a physician who's in the middle of a fight for, you know, for his patient's lives, et cetera, who didn't read the last thing that came out yesterday and says, hey, I think we ought to try hydrochloroquine. Mm -hmm. Is that an act of malpractice? No. Is it misinformation? Well, in hindsight, it is. But right. should that physician lose his license? No. Um, and the thing I like about the medical boards being the ones to do this is, they're better equipped than a jury or a judge or a legislature because what they can do is look at the information the physician had at the time, what was available to them, what was presented, was the physician's communication, you know, um, appropriate given that situation. Um, it may not be appropriate today, but it didn't happen today. It happened a year ago or whenever the, you know, mm -hmm. the complaint comes from. So, you know, this is a, a again, a thing that I think is a solution to a problem that doesn't exist. Right. I, I want to share two more reactions about this particular law, one of which was from the ACLU, which is, I would say, is probably left wing. They've been pretty affirmative of the constitutionality of vaccine mandates. Uh, even they had are skeptical about this particular law for just the reasons you were you, you were explaining, uh, that it could constrain, in some circumstances, the ability to advise patients. Uh, the other one uh, that I want to mention is from Michelle Mello, professor of law and health policy at Stanford. Um, she uh, took a look at some of the medical boards and was commenting about them, and a piece that was in the Los Angeles Times back in 2021 that found that the medical board in California only um, disciplined about 3% of the complaints uh, that they had received in that year. Um, and of course, how many of those complaints are, my doctor said hi to me the wrong way and I didn't like it. Um, that's what I always am curious about when I'm looking at those investigations. But she points out that she doesn't see the medical boards being particularly vigorous anyway um, and said that you really have to be pretty bad to get their attention. Um, is that a particular problem or do you have more faith in the medical boards than this, this professor does? Well, first of all, I would say that making an inference on the percentage of things that actually d disciplined 
and the performance of the medical boards is really stretching. Right. Because again, the very first question is, okay, well, how many of these complaints are just nuisance complaints? Yep. Um, and, and even when you look at things like malpractice, you know, there's a massive amount of, of malpractice claims, if you will, or at, that, that never turn into money for the, for the patient. Now, does that mean that the court system fails or that people are looking for a paycheck? Um, are the medical boards failing to discipline people when they should? Or like you say, are people complaining to say, you know, uh, you know, my doctor, you know, said hi to me the wrong way. Um, I will tell you that, and, and this is for personal experience, I was working with a, a medical group and we got a complaint from a patient and the doctor was, you know, and it was one of these sort of complaints that hit the sort of social media and mm-hmm. everything. And I'm not kidding. The complaint was that in the doctor's office on his desk was a picture of his wife and four children. And that obviously meant that he was insensitive to somebody who was a homosexual patient. I'm not kidding. That was the complaint. Now, I I look at things like that and go, are you serious? Nothing about whether the doctor was a good doctor. He's an excellent doctor. Um, So, again, I don't know as I would say they're failing because only 3%. If somebody wants to make the argument they're failing, then you really need to dig into the cases and find me the cases where there was really an act that was inappropriate. Mm-hmm. And if without that, I'm going to err on the side of, wow, then probably 97% of the complaints, the physician really didn't do anything wrong. And maybe it was just there was a bad outcome. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to complain because, you know, I mean, I didn't, you know, I have, an, I have a son with autism. I didn't complain that his pediatrician did something wrong because I know that he had nothing to do with it. Right. But some people would. And, and so I, I think that's sort of a hollow accusation. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to move on to one more thing in, in our uh, profile of California today and how they're handling some of uh, the things going on in the healthcare world. And this one is a little bit more hopeful, and that is that the Sacramento-based uh, Sutter Health System announced that they have filled 100% of their residency openings for next year. Uh, they're saying that that's a record there for the hospital. And I know that we've talked before about the impending uh, physician shortage. Is this a reason to be hopeful about uh, the future of physicians? Um, oddly enough, I think this is actually a reason to be more nervous. Okay. And let me explain why. First of all, Sutter does a great job. and They've got a great residency program. The vast majority of the people who flow through the Sutter residency program keep working at Sutter. I think something like 90% Mm -hmm. of them. Okay. Okay. So this is a residency program that feeds their own delivery system, which is great. Okay. The fact that they've got a hundred percent match tells me that they really want to make sure that pipeline is as full as possible because in the past, a lot of residency programs, if they didn't think you were absolutely up to their level of what they wanted, they would rather leave a slot open than fill it with somebody that just, you know, didn't have exactly what they were looking for. Well, this tells me Sutter is saying, no, no, we're going to fill these slots because we're going to need them. Because several years down the road when these, you know, physicians, you know, start becoming practicing physicians, we want them to stay here because we know we've got shortages and we know we've got them coming. Mm-hmm. So, and I'm, and there are similar data from several medical schools where, and it's not like they're letting bad people into residency, Mm-mm. but they're not being quite as picky because they really need those slots filled because they know that there's going to be a shortage coming. 
So then what can other, uh, I guess what can be done then to kind of help slow, um, slow the decline, if you will. I know we've talked with some different clients over the past week about particular specialties that are suffering more than others. Um, is there a way to incentivize people to go into some of these specialties that really need uh, young, new doctors to step in? Well, first of all, I would say let's, you know, let's stop beating physicians about the head and face. I mean, let's, we need to incentivize more people to go into medicine. Right. You know, then filtering them into the various specialties is, is day two. Day one, we need to have our best and brightest want to become doctors. I'll be honest with you. You know, if and none of my kids are talking about wanting to be a doctor, but if, you know, my, my son who's a senior in high school, if he started saying to me, Dad, I really want to be a doctor, I'm going to seriously ask him why. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, we Medicare this year cut doctors' pay. They're going to do it again next year in the middle of the worst inflation we've had in 40 years. What does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Doctors' incomes have not been going up or when you adjust for inflation. Um, the job keeps getting harder and harder. People keep dumping on them more and more. Um, yeah, I, I, first thing we do is actually value physicians um, and value them, you know, both monetarily and non-monetarily. Um, until we do that, I think what we're going to start to get is only the people who have this true passion for it, and there aren't enough of them mm-hmm. um, because it's a pretty it's a pretty bad financial move right now to become a doctor when you realize how short your earning span is compared to other fields, you know, um, how much you come out of school in debt that you start mm-hmm. out behind the eight ball. You know, you make a lot more money if you're that smart doing almost anything else. Right. Yeah, it's it's tough to, to tell people to join you when, you know, it's it's a, hey, come on in, the water's terrible kind of situation. Yeah, I, I and this was a long time ago. I wrote kind of a tongue-in-cheek piece about, and it was this, you know, this guidance counselor for, college and and you know some kid comes in and he's got you know he's he's got the best grades and all the best scores and everything and he said you know what should i do with my life and he said well there's this great job you know i want you to be a doctor and he said oh will i make a lot of money well actually not not compared to other things oh well you know when can i start well you're going to be in school for 14 years Mm -hmm. oh well i get paid while i'm doing that oh no you're going to rack up a lot of debt well are the hours really good once I get done? Oh, no, the hours are terrible. You got on call. You got all this other stuff. Why would anybody do that, the kid asks. And the college counselor says, I don't know. You're the third person who's turned me down today. <laughs> you know, that's that's sort of the, you know, in tongue-in-cheek a bit of what that environment's like. So, yeah, if we don't want to have a doctor shortage, how about if we just value them a little bit? Right. Well, I, I tried. I tried to end on a happy note. Uh, and uh, <laughs> Sorry, that's my fault. No, that's all right. It's it's good because we're telling it like it is on the Flatlining yep. Podcast. So, Ron, as always, we appreciate your wisdom and, and taking time out of your day to join us. No problem. Happy to do it. With all
Flatlining Podcast is a production of Flatlining.net and Fulcrum Strategies. Copyright 2023. All rights reserved. Be sure to subscribe to the Flatlining Podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, the iHeart Radio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also engage with Ron and myself, plus other listeners of the program, in our chat, available on the free Substack app, now available for Android as well as iOS. For Ron Howard and I'm Matthew Hambly. Have a good week.